You'll turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. We'll actually be looking at the end of 52 through the end of 53. We're considering here over the Easter season the, what the prophet Isaiah has to say about the presence of God. And here, as we turn our attention to Isaiah 52 and 53, we find uh, that when we know and experience the presence of God, we cannot help but consider his suffering on our behalf. Let's pray as we go before him this evening. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe and understand who you are. Lord, that we might look to you, not to the idols of this world or of our own making, but to you, our great God, and King, and Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what are your expectations of Jesus. I mean, here we are spending a Friday evening in the church, worshiping, gathering again on Sunday mornings in small groups. You and many others like you have devoted your lives to following after him. So what did you expect that would be like? What did you expect he would do for you or be for you? The Pharisees had expectations of the coming Messiah. As they suffered over, under Roman oppression, they thought for sure our God is going to send this anointed one, the Christ, as a conquering king. And he will subdue those Romans, and he will cast off their chains, and he will free us and exalt us to the highest place that we might truly be a light to the nations, that Israel might be restored to her former glory and transcendent. And they knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. They studied it. They knew it well. But when they came to Isaiah 52 and 53... They paused. They flinched. Because they saw here a servant of God, mighty by all accounts, but one who very clearly was destined to suffer and bear all sorts of shame and indignity. And for many theologians of that day they, and, and beyond, they could not bear the thought that the coming Messiah would be a suffering Messiah. That they attributed this passage to some other servant of God, one of the prophets or someone else entirely. And when Jesus actually came, when the Messiah actually arrived, it was a little bit like when you've only ever heard someone's voice and imagined what they look like. Maybe you've just talked to somebody on the phone or your favorite podcaster, or NPR host, or whoever, and then you actually see a picture of them, and you're like, is is that what Mark Sayers looks like? Is is that what Terry Gross looks like? I, I had no idea. And when Jesus actually arrives, he was so unrecognizable to the Pharisees, they dismissed him 
as unworthy of even coming close to being the Messiah. It was blasphemous for Jesus to even say so. But what about us? What are our expectations of Jesus? Perhaps we think of him, we would never describe him this way, but we, we, we tend to approach him like this benevolent little grandfather in the sky who's always got a quarter ready for his grandkids. He maybe even pulls it out from behind our ear, a nice little trick for those whom he loves. And he's just going to dote on us and give us all the things that we want and make us happy and comfortable and live a life of ease and pleasure. Or maybe we expect Jesus, when he shows up in our lives, to show up very much like a sheriff to arrest and condemn us, to read out to us all the counts of law that we have broken. Maybe we think of him as a manipulator to get us to do the things that he wants us to do, or a taskmaster. What are our expectations? How do we keep from falling into the same trap that the Pharisees did, that when Jesus actually shows up, we don't even recognize him. It would do us well to study Isaiah 53. Because in this chapter, God reminds his people of what the Messiah ought to be. He reminds God's people of what his own heart is. And how that's going to be reflected in how he serves and approaches his people. And what we see here are are five characteristics of the Messiah in these five stanzas that I'll read one at a time as we go through them. That reveal to us that the Messiah, far from being some earthly conquering king, is a cosmic conquering king who took on the form of a suffering servant that he might seek and save the lost. The first characteristic I want us to consider is here in chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, where we read this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. What we see in this passage is that the suffering servant, the Messiah, is full of wisdom. We might look out into this world and see the suffering and the acrimony and the, the anger and the malice and the, the despair and depression and injustice that seems to infect everything and wonder, has God lost control? Has he forgotten? But here, before we even find out what the Messiah was going to come and do, we're told from the beginning, he's going to act wisely. And what no eye has seen, what no ears conceived, what kings had not even heard of, when they see it firsthand, it will shut their mouths. Because in the servant, the wisdom of God is revealed. 
But it's going to be astonishing. It's not going to make sense to us. His appearance will be as if marred beyond human semblance. He's not going to look like the earthly kings. He's not going to behave in ways that conform to earthly wisdom. And it will seem foolish and ridiculous. The inhabitants of the Ganges Delta were enduring a a terror of tigers just attacking, sneaking up and attacking the residents of that region to the point that it became a, a just a regional problem and they were trying to figure out what to do to solve it. And they'd set traps or put up barriers. They even like put these uh, effigies of people up that were like electrified to maybe teach Tigers that humans aren't tasty, they'll give you a shock. And none of those things really worked until somebody realized they never attacked somebody who was looking at them. And as ridiculous as it sounds, they just put these grotesque masks on the back of their heads and walked around. And silly, simple, inexpensive as it may seem, for three years, no one who did that was attacked by a tiger. What seems foolish in the eyes of men, yet in God's wisdom, is glorious. And what he tells us in this stanza is that this servant who is so full of wisdom, he will carry out God's plan of redemption And it will be unlike anything we could imagine. It will shut every mouth. It will bring the kings of the earth low. And it will lift up only one. It will exalt only one. The very suffering servant himself. The second characteristic of this servant we see in the first three verses of chapter 53. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The characteristic of the servant that we see here is that he reveals himself to witnesses who will testify to his glory. Sometimes I wonder this, and maybe you do too. Wouldn't it just be easier, God? Why don't you just reveal yourself? Like, let's get it over with. Just show up. Come, Lord Jesus. Convert everybody in one fell swoop. And let's, let's get on with with doing things well. Why doesn't he do it that way? Why doesn't he consult me? And what you see here is he he sends out witnesses who has believed what they heard from us. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He he grew up before us. We saw him for who he was, but but everyone else, they, they turned their faces from him. They didn't listen to us. They thought this ridiculous. Why doesn't God just show up? He has shown up. And time and time again, when he leads his people 
in his glory, the pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. When he descends on the temple or the tabernacle in all his majesty, when he sends his servants out with his word, when he comes himself, bringing healing and truth and righteousness and peace, we are so blind, we are so worldly, we despise him, we reject him. We turn away from him and esteem him not. Because God's ways are not our ways. We find them ridiculous and foolish if left to ourselves. Noah, for how many years did he preach righteousness and repentance against a coming storm only to be laughed at and mocked. Or Isaiah, who himself was sent out to preach to a people who he knew would turn a deaf ear to a good word. Ezekiel, with all of his crazed signs and symbols, trying to get their attention. John the Baptist, crying out in the wilderness, setting and marking out a new way of righteousness. Stephen, who just told it to him flat out, straight up. Here's what the Bible says, and you've rejected it. They stoned him. They rejected him. They beheaded John the Baptist. They took God's servants and cast them aside. They ignored them and killed them. What make... And even when he came himself, They did the very same. And yet, his way is glorious. His work is majestic. Even if we do not see it as such, even if his glory and majesty is veiled to us because we have been so blinded by the things of the world, yet God still comes. And he makes his presence known and he reveals himself to his people. And when they see him for who he is, he sends them out with that ridiculous message that God comes to seek and save the lost. The suffering servants. He sends us out to bear witness, whether we are believed or not, to the truth of who he is. The third characteristic I would have you see is here in verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The characteristic of this suffering servant that we see here is that he has come in all his majesty and glory to endure great affliction for the sake of those who don't deserve it. 
And perhaps this is why we have such a hard time seeing God for who he is. Because who does this? When someone cuts me off in traffic, I don't thank them, tip my hat to them, and wish them a blessed day, even if I maybe should. When people have said horrific things, we don't celebrate that and pat them on the back and say, you go about with your bigoted and hateful speech. Yet God comes to the very ones who esteemed him not, the ones who rejected him, the ones who rebelled against him, the one who set themselves up in his place. And he suffers affliction. Such great affliction that those who see it esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God himself. So great was his suffering. This must be divine judgment. And though he was stricken, though he was bearing the very wrath of God in his body, it was not because of anything that he had done. He was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement that was placed upon him was to work peace for us. We are the ones who have gone astray. We are the one who are full of iniquity. We are the one who has, each of us, turned to his own way, sought to be our own God, sought to live for our own glory. But he's borne our grief. He's borne our sorrows. And the Lord laid on him our iniquity. This is what the cross is, what we read before. And that assurance of pardon from 2 Corinthians 5.21. This great exchange takes place on the cross. That Christ, who is perfect and majestic and glorious, on the cross becomes sin for us. Bearing in his body our iniquity, our wickedness, our shame, our guilt, every errant thought, word, and deed, every wicked act. Every sinful desire, God places that upon the Lord Jesus. That what might be placed upon us is his perfection, his majesty, his holiness, even his glory. That we might be granted access before the the God of all freely, boldly, without fear or shame, Because he has purchased in his body peace between us and God. This reveals to us how great and grievous our sins really are. And how ridiculous it is for us to minimize them. To play them down. To avoid dealing with them. To not take responsibility for them. To to blame others for them. That the Lord Jesus would come and offer himself in our place. Shows us how great our need is. The suffering servant 
does even more. We see in verses 7 through 9 this fourth characteristic. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. What we see about this suffering servant is that he doesn't simply endure great affliction for the sake of others who don't deserve it. It's that he chooses willingly to walk that path of sacrifice. Sometimes we may find ourselves discontent with the world, with our lives, with the path that God has called us, called us to walk. And we begin to wonder, has he forgotten? Is he punishing me? We lose trust that his eye really is on the sparrow and on us. And we begin to wander. And we begin to seek our own way. But we find here that the cross, this path of suffering, it was not plan B. It was not an accident. It was not foisted upon him from outside. He chose this path. He was innocent. But he did not open his mouth to protest. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. He chose this path for us because of his great love for us, because He calls us by name because he calls us his people because it is the heart of God that he would be our God, that we would be his people, that we would dwell with him forever and that we would know the glory of his presence without ceasing. And in order for that to take place, he could not just show up in his glory lest we despise him. He could not just show up in his wrath, lest we be condemned before him. He shows up in love, bearing our griefs, bearing our iniquities, bearing that oppression and affliction willingly, going to the grave, the same grave that will welcome the wicked and the rich and the poor, though he did not deserve it. He goes to that grave that we might not have to dwell there. This is God's heart towards sinners. This is why he suffers. Not that he might heap more condemnation upon us, but he might make us his own. And so we turn our attention now to this last characteristic 
of the suffering servant here in verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. and He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We see this last characteristic, that the suffering servant conquers in righteousness. It was the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief. But when the soul of this servant makes offering for sin, it shall prolong his days. The Lord will prosper his hand. It's out of the anguish of his soul that he'll see and be satisfied. And he will rule in righteousness and he will make others righteous. And he will conquer such that he can give the spoils of his victory to all who follow after him. He counted himself numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many that he might now make intercession for those same sinners and transgressors that they might see him and follow him and be made righteous in him. Maybe this is why the Pharisees really rejected the Lord Jesus. Because to recognize the glory of the suffering servant would be to embrace the way of the suffering servant. To not lord it over others, but to serve in humility. To not seek glory, something to be grasped, but to sacrifice for the sake of others. Christ conquered sin and death through suffering. And he invites us into eternal life to draw near to him, to enjoy the glory of his presence and to follow where he leads, even if it means we share in his sufferings. Even if it means we die to ourselves. Because the life that the world offers is no life at all. And it's through dying to those idols. It's through dying to the way of our own hearts. It's through dying to our own sinful ways. That we are set free in Christ to live for him and in him and to him in righteousness. Maybe the reason the Pharisees did not like this passage with regards to the Messiah, is because they recognized that it offered a path of discipleship that was going to be very hard. And they didn't think it was worth it. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for your expectations of Jesus? 
What does it mean for you to draw near to him and to know him? To know the glory that he bears all your iniquities. To follow him in a kingdom that will have no end. Maybe it means the question isn't so much what are your expectations of Jesus, but what are are his expectations of you? Where has he called you to go? What has he called you to bear witness to? What has he called you to proclaim about him in your words and in your deeds that others might hear and see and know that the Lord Jesus Christ is a conquering king who took on the form of a suffering servant that he might seek and save the law. Even you, come to Christ, that we might die to the world and live in him. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, exalt Christ before us and help us to turn our eyes to him. That we might see in his suffering our peace. That we might know in his affliction that we are set free, that we might live as those who have been made righteous in him. Lord, put to death in us anything that would draw us away from you, that we might know Christ and the glory of his presence, the majesty of his love, this conquering king who loved us enough that he would suffer and die, that we might live. Grant this for his glory. We ask it in his name. Amen.